You are who you are. You are who you are primarily because of the family that came before you. Now, there's, there's other influences, to be sure, the decisions that you can make, but you are who you are today primarily because of the family that came before you. You heard a little bit about Dana's family. She is today largely because of the influence of her parents and grandparents. I'm no exception to that. I still have a farm in me. You can take the boy off the farm, but you can't take the farm out of the boy. So I still love to be outdoors. I still love to play in the dirt. My mother was very interested in education. She wanted to make sure that that all of her children could go further than she did. She was the only one in her family up to that point who had ever been away to college. And so I went on to higher education as well. That was very important to her. My grandfather loved baseball. My father loved baseball. I love baseball. My children love baseball. It's, it's part of how we grew up and what we did. And so in the very same way that you are, who you are primarily because of your family, so will your children and their children and their children because of the influence that you have on them. Now, I could tell all kinds of stories about my life here today, but that would be a little bit boring, so we're going to look at the Bible. But there's a problem. Do you remember when we first started five weeks ago, why it's so hard to to find good examples in the Bible of what we would call today good Christian families? Most of them, as we read about them, especially in the Old Testament, are dysfunctional, aren't they? And the primary reason is because the guys had too many wives. It's never a good way to start out. And we're going to get to that in just a moment, but we're going to look at a family that is exceptional in how they turn out. And you're going to see how influence weaves its way through the various generations. So let's begin with Joseph. Joseph is the son of Jacob, who's the son of Isaac, who's the son of Abraham. We've heard about all these people, these patriarchs, here in church and in Sunday school. So Joseph is the 11th child in a family of 12 boys. Comprehend that for a moment. 12 boys and the other 10 who were born before Joseph, all the other brothers, hate him. Truly, they hate him. They hate him because he is the favorite son of his father's favorite wife. And they are not. Now, Benjamin's the only one who doesn't hate him only because Benjamin is not yet born. So he doesn't hate him yet. So my wife, my good wife, she's back there somewhere, she says to me all the time, you are my favorite husband, right? Which I should be because I'm our only husband. But in the case of Joseph and Jacob, it's not the case. How would you like to, to hear from your husband or wife, you're my second favorite wife, or you're my third favorite husband? Or as a child, you're not my favorite, but you're in the top 10. Probably not so good. So we have this problem from the very beginning. All Joseph's brothers hate him. And he's a tattletale on top of that. Not only is he the favorite son, but everywhere he goes, he always tells on his brothers. You see, being the youngest, how many of you are the youngest? Any youngest out there? You know how this works, right? 
So your brothers and sisters, the older ones, seemingly, they, they get all the breaks. They get to do everything you don't get to do. So when you have opportunity, you're going to tell on them. They're in trouble. They're always doing the wrong thing. And Joseph would come back to his father and say, look, Dad, they're messing up again. So one day, they're not where they're supposed to be. Joseph has to find them. When he does, they all decide that they're going to kill him. You see, not only is he a tattletale, not only is he the favorite son or the favorite wife, he's arrogant. He thinks he's better than all the rest. In fact, he has a dream. You remember the dream. The ten older brothers will all bow down to him. That's not what you want to hear if you're the older brother. And so they literally decide they're going to kill him. Now, as as one of five boys, I decided that I was going to kill my brothers many times. But I only tried once or twice, and thank God I was unsuccessful. Well, they decide that they're going to kill him. They throw him in a well to decide how to go about doing it. Now, the smart one in the family, who is Judah, he's the one that Christ is eventually going to come from his line. Judah says, hey, let's not kill him. Let's just make it look like he's dead. We'll tell mom and dad that an animal, a wild animal, attacked him and killed him. And better yet, we will sell him and make a little bit of money on the side. See, he's the smart one. And so they do. They sell him into slavery in Egypt. Now, whenever we read the Bible, if you're like me, we we tend to romanticize things. Like when we make our little manger of Jesus, the creche. It's all so nice and sanitary and we have the animals. Well, I was, it wasn't literally born in a barn, but close. It's not where you want to be born. So also with Joseph, he's a slave. Can you imagine you're 17 years old? You're a teenager. You should be going to school, but you're a slave. He's being dragged across the desert to Egypt. And he knows a little bit about slavery because his family has had slaves. He doesn't even know if he'll live to see Egypt. Now, when he gets there, as luck would have it, or the providence of God, Potiphar is the one who buys him. Potiphar is the captain of the guard of the Pharaoh's palace. And Joseph makes a decision right then. He decides that he will always do what is right. And even though it may look at times like God is not with him, he will always act as if God was. He's always going to do what's right, and he's always going to act as if God were with him. And so very soon, God blesses him with success. Everything that Potiphar has, he's in charge of, except one thing. Can you guess what it might be? It would be Potiphar's wife. And yet she makes advances on him, strapping handsome young man, and he rejects her advances. And he says, it would be a sin against my master, who happens to be your husband, by the way, and also against my God, if I were to acquiesce. And so, of course, she is hurt, being spurned. She tells her husband, Potiphar, that he tried to rape her, and he is put in prison. Does it look like God is with him? He's done nothing wrong, 
and he's in prison. And he languishes there because the Egyptian prisons in those days, unlike prison today, where you can get a lawyer and you can have a trial at some point, and there is a, a sentence that has a finite end to it, there was no such thing. He may never get out. He's probably going to die in prison. But he continues to do the right thing, and pretty soon he finds favor in the eyes of the warden, and he has privileges that no one else has. And then there are those who have dreams, and they come to him. And you remember the baker and the cupbearer, and Joseph prophesied. And he tells the cupbearer that you are going to be pardoned. Now, when you are, and you go into Pharaoh's household, would you please tell somebody about me? And do you remember what he does? The cupbearer is pardoned. He goes into Pharaoh's household, and he forgets. And there Joseph is for another two years in prison. But you know how the story ends, the miraculous part of it. Pharaoh has a dream. Seven fat cows, seven years of abundance. Seven lean cows coming out of the Nile, seven years of famine. And Pharaoh searches, is there anyone in the entire kingdom who can tell me what this means, these seven cows? Oh, the cupbearer finally remembers. There's this Hebrew guy that I met in prison. He can tell you what it means. And so Joseph does. Seven Years of abundance, seven years of famine. Pharaoh, if you're smart, you'll hire somebody to manage all of this. And Pharaoh says, how about you? And God smiles on him, and Joseph becomes the prime minister of the entire land. And it comes to pass. Seven good years. Seven years of famine. And not only Egypt, but the entire world is starving, including, going back to the beginning of our story, Joseph's brothers, who come down from the land of Canaan to Egypt, and the prophecy is fulfilled. They bow down before the prime minister of Egypt. And Joseph sees them all lined up. And he can't help but remember 22 years before when he was in that cistern and he was pleading for his life. And his brothers just laughed and joked. And he heard the clink of the silver being handed over to the slave traders. And he remembered what it was like have his life end as he knew it. And now there they are, the ten brothers. And Joseph has an opportunity, an opportunity for revenge, an opportunity for retribution. And what is he going to do? Well, he remembers another time from his childhood. And he connects the dots to a story that he lived, but he had heard many, many times before. This is where we so often miss the part of legacy. We know how the story ends, but we don't see how it began. Joseph's father is Jacob. Jacob is a twin with Esau. 
Esau is the older one. Jacob is the younger. In that culture, the oldest, the firstborn, got twice the portion of all the wealth of the father. It belongs to Esau, even though he's only a few minutes earlier. And then Jacob gets the lesser portion. Well, they're completely different, even though they're twins. Esau is the outdoorsman. He's the hunter and the fisherman. Jacob stays at home. He learns how to cook. One day, being a teenager, Esau is out. He's been hunting for several days. He comes back with nothing, and he is famished. And so, he smells this wonderfully delicious meal. Jacob is is making a pot of stew. And he says, hey, bro, how about a little bit of that stew? And Jacob, being the younger, what does the younger always do? What can I get out of this? How can I leverage? I mean, the older brother, the older sister, they always get the favor of mom and dad. I'm going to turn the tables. And so he says, I tell you what, let's start the bidding at the very highest. How about your birthright? How about the double portion? And Esau, being a teenager and the frontal lobe is not yet fully developed, can only think about the here and now, can't think about the future. He's starving to death, or at least he thinks he is. And he says, deal! My birthright for a bowl of stew. And after the stew was finished, so was the birthright. Can you imagine over the years then how the anger builds in Esau? Later on we discover that he loses his blessing as well because Jacob tricks him. And now his father Isaac is growing old and he's going to die. And Esau thinks to himself, dad's dying soon. As soon as he's dead, I'm going to kill my brother Jacob as well. And when I kill him, then I will have my birthright. And when I kill him, then I'm going to have my blessing. And when I kill him, I'm going to have all those things that he's stolen from me. If you're Jacob, what are you going to do? Get out of town. And as soon as possible. So he goes to see his uncle Laban. And he sees Rachel, who will become his wife. Love at first sight. Rachel is the most beautiful woman that Jacob has ever seen. And Laban, being his kin, makes him a deal. Seven years of hard labor, Rachel can be your wife. All right, deal. Seven years, time's up, wedding day, consummate the marriage the next night. And lo and behold, and I still cannot figure out how this happens. It isn't Rachel. It's Leah, the older sister. And so he has to spend seven more years to get the woman of his dreams. Seven more years pass. Over 20 years he's been gone. He now has four wives (laughs) and 11 sons. And yet God has shown favor on him and he is incredibly wealthy. So rich. He has all these flocks and all these herds that the land cannot sustain them. In the word of the Lord, the Bible says, comes to Jacob, and it says, go home. 
Go home to the land of your forefathers, the land of Isaac and the land of Abraham, and oh, by the way, your brother Esau. And so they go, and they're on the way. And all the kids are asking, Dad, where are we going? Well, we're going back to the land of our forefathers. Do you mean Uncle Esau? Is that where we're going? Yep, that's, that's right. That's where we're going. Didn't, didn't Uncle Esau want to kill you? Yep, 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 sure he does. Does he still want to kill you? Yeah, probably. And that's what we're going to do? Yes, that's what we're going to do. And so Esau meets them with 400 men. 400 men, not to welcome them, but to kill them. There they are, all lined up on the ridge. Jacob has no army. He has his two servants who bore children for him. He has his second favorite wife, Leah, and her children. And then he has his favorite wife and Joseph. And he lines them up in that order because they're going to kill the least favorite wife first. Can you imagine? And then the favorite one and the favorite child last. So Jacob goes out into no man's land. He sees his army up there. And so he bows down. And he says, my servant Esau, my Lord Esau. And he does it seven times. He bows down and he calls out, My Lord, Esau. And then the Bible says, Esau, after all these years of being angry, after all these decades of being bitter, of contemplating day in and day out how his brother stole everything from him, the Bible says that he ran And he embraced him, and he wept. And that's the day that Joseph remembered. Now as he sees his brothers all bowed down before him, he remembers where he was when his uncle Esau forgave and reconciled with his father Jacob. He remembered how when Esau had a choice and he could have had retribution and he could have punished his brother, when he could have killed him and taken all of his family as well, when he chose to forgive. That's what he remembered. He's heard the stories over and over and over again. And now when he has a choice, with his own brothers. He welcomes them into his inner chamber, hugs them, and he forgives them. And he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. The moral of our story today is this. Your children and your grandchildren, your nieces and your nephews, they're not going to remember what you said, but they will remember what you did in a time of crisis. 
The bottom line is that actions do indeed speak louder than words. Not just for the moment. And not even for the next five or ten years, but through the next generation. And the generation after that. So the question for you today, what are you going to do differently as you contemplate the legacy that you're leaving for the next generation? What choices are you going to make? What stories are going to be told? I hope by God's grace that one day I will become a grandfather. And by God's grace, someday I'll become a great-grandfather. And even though my great-grandchildren will probably never know who I was, they will have heard the story of what their great-grandfather did. How he took their grandparents to church and their parents learned about the grace of God. The cross became a central part of my life and their lives and each generation after it. I hope they'll hear those stories of when their great-grandfather did the right thing, even though it wasn't the easy thing. How he stayed and faced the issues and the problems and didn't run away, even though it would have been so much easier. I hope they'll hear stories of how he put others before himself. And I hope they'll hear the stories that even when he messed up, because he surely will, that he always relied on the forgiveness of others and of God that that love and that grace of Jesus Christ was the focal point of his life. That's what I hope they'll hear. So ask yourself today, what stories are going to be told about you? What kind of a legacy will you leave for the next generation? Let's all rise and prepare ourselves for the prayer of the church.